Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I've done a lot of work with, uh, with combatants, with soldiers, military, in various societies. And they are the ideas you gotta, you gotta press on, you gotta take care of business, your job is to be strong and to to fight and to kill. And if you're not, it is, I mean, used to be, you know, up until even in the First World War, people who talked about being traumatized and unable to function, some of them were shot as deserters or they were thrown in prison because they, the overwhelming emphasis was on doing the job at hand, which in the case of the military is fighting and killing other people. So we pushed trauma and that's, that's maybe the most dramatic example, but you see it in, in, in lots of other people. You see it in people who are supposed to be taking care of others, like uh, doctors and nurses and teachers. They're saying, no, we, we, we're the ones who are taking care of other people. We're supposed to be the strong adults. We can't let down our guard. And of yeah. course, what happens is that when you act that way, when you create a culture that's that way, the, the pain, the damage goes underground. It goes into our bodies and our minds. And not only do we feel troubled and disabled, but we tend to shut ourselves off from other people. So we destroy the possibility of connection that could help us move through trauma. And that's, I mean, I think it's largely in societies where we have to move ahead, where the show must go on in some way, and you're supposed to be strong and take care of business all the time. Yeah. And how you day, how you day trauma. Okay. This is something I've been studying for a while right now. And, you know, uh, with my therapist, I've been unpacking some of my own childhood traumas. And I think when we look at today's world, one of the things that we have defined as culture is trauma. But a lot of us don't know how to heal ourselves or where to go to seek healing. And it's, it's really causing a lot of disconnect in a world where people aren't able to connect with themselves, but also they're not able to connect um, effectively across cultures and ultimately with others. And as we become a culture that is constantly being divisive, we end up getting further away from the best versions of ourselves. So I was really excited to hear James's thoughts on the on trauma and what he's learned from it. And trust me, this is a very, very knowledge-rich rich, uh, episode, and you're going to have a lot of things that you can apply to yourselves. And I hope that you take notes. I certainly took a lot of notes, especially with understanding our biological reactions to trauma and then what we can do when we experience those moments. So please don't take this episode lightly and pass it on to as many people as you can. Enjoy this. 
sit with this replay this <laughs> and, and share it with with people that are important to you and um hopefully my hope at least is that as you become more in touch with your childhood traumas and you heal from them you become the best version of yourself and you tap into the best leader that you can be which ultimately affects your circle of influence and that affects their circle of influence and then we become this world that is using our differences to make a difference but enough rambling for now enjoy the episode truly love you all and talk to you soon Welcome, everybody, to another episode of As Told by Nomads, and today's episode is with Dr. James Gordon. Now, Dr. James is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, former researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health and chair of the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine Policy, as well as a clinical professor of psychiatry and family medicine at Georgetown Medical School. He authored or edited 10 previous books, 10 including Unstuck, Your Guide to the Seven-Stage Journey Out of Depression. He has written often for numerous popular publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, the Guardian, as well as professional journals. And he has served as an expert for such outlets as 60 Minutes, The Today Show, Good Morning America, CBS Sunday Morning, Nightline, CNN, MSNBC, NPR, and many others. Today, we're talking about his new book, which is called The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. Very, very interesting, uh, interesting conversation, but also something that I am fascinated by. As you listeners all know that we all talk about different ways to build self-awareness, but also to be aware of our triggers. So let's uh, welcome Dr. Gordon to the show. Welcome. Thank you, Teo. Good to be here. The pleasure is mine. So you've had over, you know, about 50 years of this of research or experience in this. And I'm just curious as to what you actually define as trauma and stress. What What is psychological trauma and what is stress? Well, trauma is a Greek word and, and it means injury. And uh, it's the injury, it's the damage, it's the upsetting, distressing events that are gonna come inevitably to every human on the planet. If it doesn't come early on, because we've been neglected or abused or there's been discrimination or we grew up in poverty, it will maybe pretty likely come during our adult life as we deal with losses and challenges and relationships and illnesses and concerns for family members and economic concerns. And if it doesn't happen then, it's going to happen toward the end of our life as we deal with becoming more frail and losing people we love and our own inevitable death. So the idea is trauma is a part of life, and it's not apart from life or just something that happens to somebody else, people who are far away in a war or children who've been horribly abused and for years and years. And I think this is a very important notion for us to have because we've, um, we, we've lost that sense that, uh, that indigenous people all over the world have that challenges are going to come, that traumatic events are going to come, that stress is going to come into our lives. And we think this is uh, an exceptional thing and maybe even something to be ashamed of. And it's not. It's part of our lives. And that's that's really important place to begin. Well, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I do agree with that concept of us, I don't know, somewhere along the line, just forgetting how to have a relationship with trauma as well as stress. And maybe it is because we've forgotten what that term is, but 
you know, I, I, there are many cultures around the world and many, you know, institutions that sort of make it seem like if you address your trauma or make your trauma known, you are quote unquote weak or it limits you, it makes you less than. Where do you think that culture started to build up in? You know, how, how did we get there? Where that's a, um, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, it happens, as you say, it, it happens in many cultures and some, I mean, you can see it. I've done a lot of work with uh, with combatants, with soldiers, military in various societies. And they are the ideas you gotta you gotta press on, you gotta take care of business, your job is to be strong and to to fight and to kill. And if you're not, it is I mean, used to be, you know, up until even in the First World War, people who talked about being traumatized and unable to function, some of them were shot as deserters or they were thrown in prison because they the overwhelming emphasis was on doing the job at hand, which in the case of the military is fighting and killing other people. So we pushed trauma, and that's that, that's maybe the most dramatic example, but you see it in, in, in lots of other people. You see it in people who are supposed to be taking care of others, like uh, doctors and nurses and teachers. They're saying, no, we, we, we're the ones who are taking care of other people. We're supposed to be the strong adults. We can't let down our guard. And of course, what happens is that when you act that way, when you create a culture that's that way, the the pain, the damage goes underground. It goes into our bodies and our minds. And not only do we feel troubled and disabled, but we tend to shut ourselves off from other people. So we destroy the possibility of connection that could help us move through trauma. And that's I mean, I think it's largely in societies where we have to move ahead, where the show must go on in some way, and you're supposed to be strong and take care of business all the time. Yeah. And that's part of our, very much part of our modern world, but it's not just in the modern world, although that's where you see it more dramatically, I think. No, absolutely. And yeah, um, I, I do think we're seeing some of the consequences, you know, a lot of the, uh, bless you, a lot of the uh, atrocities we have, whether I would even, you know, link, you know, part of school shootings, some of the way we interact with people of different backgrounds, how we interact with people as a whole that are, we perceive to be different. There are certain um, stress triggers <laughs> that seem to be, to be prompted. And I notice it when people are having conversations with people they don't agree with, and when you haven't done the work to address what your potential traumas may be or what your potential triggers may be, they seem to flare up and it becomes this blown out conversation and there's almost no room for reconciliation. And, and that's my particular uh, fascination with this topic and, and how it impacts connection to self and others. So I'm curious if, to see if you've noticed the same, obs- you know, same observations I have in recent years. Well, we li- we're living, I mean, if you think of the United States in, you know, 2019, everything is so polarized and people right. are so fixed in their ideas and their views of who they are and who other people are, that any challenge to that tends to be very unsettling. And because we're in this state, it, it's almost as if for many, many people, we're in this constant uh, kind of reactive state, which may be the result of some unresolved trauma, but is certainly a high stress state so that we're so ready to, uh, you know, to get irritated, aggravated or enraged if somebody in any way disagrees with us. It feels right. like a, 
a threat to our very existence when it's just another person with another point of view. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and 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 I'm hoping that um, you know people listening get your book because I think you do cover a little a bit about how to make sure we work on doing the inner work. But speaking of inner work, there's something you said and something that this book does. You're teaching readers that each of us has the capacity to heal themselves, and you have the step by step method. I'm wondering if you can walk us through that those steps because the idea of healing oneself, I don't know that that's something that we espouse often or even believe. So when you're saying that we can heal ourselves, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good point because we, you know, again, this is part of the way our society is set up. We think there's some expert who's got the answer for us and the answer is in a pill exactly. or a particular piece of uh, advice. We, we sort of act often uh, like we need to be fixed as if we were a car and going to a mechanic. But in fact, um, we have this natural healing capacity in us. If we learn the right tools to use, we can rebalance those parts of us that are disrupted by trauma. And I'll talk about those in a moment. And we can become aware of what continues to trigger us. And we can actually learn from our trauma and move and grow through it and become who we're meant to be. Now, this is a very ancient understanding. Uh, and indigenous people all over the world understand this. In fact, the people who become the healers in most of the indigenous societies that I know about, those are people who, when they were young, either as children or young adults, they've experienced a terrible traumatic event, a life-threatening illness. They've been suicidal or very depressed. They've even had a psychotic episode. And they've come through this episode with help from the official healer in that society. And as they've come through the episode, they've come through it with a deep understanding of that power within them and within everybody that is there that can help and heal humans. Now, the, the method that I present in the transformation is both grounded in modern science and also in my experience of working with indigenous healers many places on the planet and learning from them as well. And it begins with an understanding that when we've experienced a traumatic event, whether it's a single event like a death of somebody we love or a terrible injury to ourselves, or whether it's been chronic trauma, say growing up in an abusive family or being in an abusive relationship, that there are two basic biological reactions we have. Um, one is we go into fight or flight. It's as if, you know, we're in a relationship that's abusive, but our, according to our body, it's as if it's a matter of life and death. And so we have this very, very old reaction, which is there in all vertebrates, all animals with backbones, we go into fight or flight, which means our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up, our big muscles in our body get ready to fight or to run, digestion gets shut down, parts of our brain responsible for governing fear and anger are inflamed, they're very active, and parts of our brain that are responsible for thoughtful decision-making and self-awareness and compassion start shutting down. So we're like, we're like scared animals. And the problem is not with this reaction. This is a life-saving reaction, potentially, 
The problem is when that reaction to a traumatic event continues long after the event is over and or that we stay in situations which keep us in this state of fight or flight. Now, the response, fight or flight response, is meant to be quickly turned on and quickly turned off. If you look at a, a nature film of animals, for example, on the Serengeti Plain in Africa, and you see an antelope that's grazing there, a lion appears, the antelope goes into fight or flight. And in the case of the antelope, there's no point in fighting a lion, so it's off and running. And if the lion catches it, of course, the story is over. But if the antelope gets away, three minutes later, you see her happily grazing as if nothing had happened. Fight or flight has come, done its job, and the antelope is back in balance. We humans carry the lion with us everywhere we go. Mm -hmm. The other reaction that comes if we're totally overwhelmed, this is a situation where you know, we're on the street and four guys come at us and they beat us to a pulp and we can't do anything, or a situation like a rape or during a war, or sometimes for children who are in dependent on parents who are abusive or neglectful and they can't do anything about it. In that kind of situation, sometimes we're in fight or flight, but sometimes we also go into the freeze response, which is a very... It's a very old, evolutionarily old response. We kind of shut down and collapse. And you can think of, uh, I don't know if you have pet cats. I used to live on a farm and I had four pet cats. And they'd catch a mouse and the, they'd have the mouse in their jaws and they'd be shaking it around. And the mouse would go all limp. She was going into the freeze response. Sometimes the cats would crunch their jaws together and story would be over for the mouse, but sometimes the cats would get bored because it's not so much fun to, you know, to torture a, a limp, unresponsive mouse. They'd put the mouse down, mouse would shake herself off and run away. So the freeze response came, saved the mouse's life, and she recovered from it. Same <laughs> with humans. We go into freeze, but we humans tend to stay in that freeze response. It may be life-saving when we're overwhelmed, but if it continues long after the overwhelming event is over, we get withdrawn, we get shut down emotionally, we, we don't connect with other people anymore. So the book, The Transformation, understands and takes account of these biological responses and then lays out a program for recovering from this biological damage that's done and bringing ourselves back into balance and mobilizing all of our imaginative and mental and social and physical capacities for self-healing. Wow, thank you for sharing. And it's that balance that I want to explore more because I do. I, I love how you you use the analogies there. You know, with the, with the lion and versus the uh, was it the antelope? Uh, I think. Um, and uh, and you, you talked about fight, flight, freeze, and how when we compare it to other animals we don't have uh, an easier time transitioning or transforming from that from those experiences how do we how do you move from fight to come back to normal how do you transform from flight to normal and i know that the people listening here who probably are constantly being triggered or traumatized based on certain experiences or it could be the workplace environment i'm curious to see if you could share some tips 
and how to work one's way out of that? What are things that you've noticed, methods? Sure, happy to do it. So the, the first thing is, and this is what why we're talking, is that it's possible to use a whole variety of methods to recover and heal ourselves. That idea is important. It's important for people to know that. I tell stories of other people who've done it to give examples and inspire readers. First technique that I teach is slow, deep breathing with our bellies soft and relaxed. And we can do that for a minute or so together and our listeners can do it too. Okay. Just breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth with your belly soft and relaxed. Perhaps closing your eyes to eliminate external distraction. Saying to yourself soft as you breathe in and belly as you breathe out. Focusing on the breath, on the words soft and belly, and on the feeling of our bellies being soft and relaxed. And as the belly relaxes, becoming aware that the other muscles in our bodies are relaxing as well. We'll just do this for a minute. Gently bring your mind back to soft belly. So that's, hmm. how do you feel? I feel much lighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, yeah. just, you know, we're talking, we're going back and forth, but it's good every once in a while, even in the middle of an interesting conversation, just to take a few deep breaths. You kind of yeah. come back with a little more calm, a little more focus, a little more openness. So this is a basic technique. This is the antidote to the fight or flight response. It changes, it quiets the mind and calms the body. The centers in the brain responsible for fear and anger, activity goes down in them. Blood pressure goes down, heart rate goes down, muscles relax. Parts of the brain responsible for good decision-making and self-awareness and compassion start to light up just as we do this, as we breathe slowly and deeply in through our nose, out through our mouth, with our belly soft and relaxed. This is a fundamental technique. A lot of research has been done on how this can not only uh, improve immune functioning, decrease anxiety, improve mood, improve focus, improve sleep, but also doing this kind of quiet, concentrative meditation or doing a similar kind of mindfulness meditation where you become aware of your thoughts and your feelings as you're breathing can rebuild tissue in our brain that's been damaged. This is research has been done. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the last 15, 20 years, very powerful. And you don't have to go to Tibet and study for 20 years. <laughs> you can learn how to do these meditation techniques and you can practice on your own. You can practice. Uh, the research has shown that people who do this kind of meditation just two hours a week, that's less than 20 minutes a day, can get major results in rebuilding brains that have been stressed out and traumatized. So this is fundamental technique that I suggest huh. to everybody. So that just that simple art of being mindful and breathing and trying to be present, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's so simple. And what this does is it not only creates the kind of changes that, you know, we may have seen about being more relaxed or more focused or more present, but it also gives us the message, hey, you can do something to make a difference in how you feel. You have that power. Mm. Yeah. Second technique that I use really almost, almost always is one or another kind of expressive meditation. Soft belly breathing is a concentrative meditation. You're concentrating on the breath, the words, soft belly, and the feeling in the belly. Second kind of meditation is mindfulness, becoming more aware of your thoughts, feelings, and sensations. The third kind of meditation that is also fundamental to trauma healing and to dealing with triggers is expressive meditation. These are physical meditations. They're the oldest ones on the planet. All of our ancestors did expressive meditations. Indigenous people all over the world continue to do them. And they're also part of the monotheistic religions, even though we don't pay as much attention to them. So for example, in Christianity, there are the exercises, very vigorous physical exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola for Catholics. Some Protestants and Catholics dance and sing during their services or speak in tongues. Those are kinds of expressive meditations. Um, Jews, Orthodox Jews, they daven, they bow, or they dance. And Muslims, they whirl, or they also do dancing. So this, this is part of our human heritage, and, and we neglect it. And it's enormously helpful when we've been traumatized. Now, the simplest one and the one I often teach first involves shaking and dancing. And this is very, I mean, shaking's pretty simple. You don't need a PhD or an MD to, to <laughs> teach or learn shaking. You just stand up 
with your feet shoulder width and your knees bent and you start shaking from your feet up through your knees and hips and chest and shoulders and you let your head go and you just shake your body and you do that maybe for five six minutes and then a couple minutes of just relaxing and becoming aware of the body becoming aware of the breath and then allowing your body to move to music that's inspiring and energizing to you and what this does is it breaks up the fixed physical and emotional patterns that follow trauma or that are there with us when we're under continued stress. Our bodies are tense. They're shut down. You can see it and feel it in yourself. Our minds are constantly going over what happened. We're having memories of what happened. We're having thoughts about it. I should have done this. I should have done the other thing. Or we're worried that it's going to happen again. When we shake and dance like this, we come into the present moment. We release the tension and the emotions that are buried in our body, which relates to the discussion we were having earlier about societies that tell us we shouldn't be having these traumatic feelings, we shouldn't be having these emotions, we're able to release them and to let go. And then the dancing just gives us an opportunity to express ourselves. So these are the two techniques that I begin with. I can tell you stories of, of the power of these techniques. And then we go on to all the other, once we're in a state of greater balance, greater physical and physiological and psychological balance, then we can use all the other techniques that all of the world's healing traditions have made available. Guided imagery and written exercises and drawings and reaching out to other people and appreciating nature and animals and gratitude and all these other techniques. But first, and on a continuing basis, we have to bring ourselves back into balance and let go of some of the tension, some of the stress, some of these fixed ideas that we were talking about earlier that just keep us in prison. Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes we're in prison and we've, we have a mind prison that we put ourselves in. And it's interesting because many of us don't realize that. And to your point, if we don't realize that, we don't even know that we can heal ourselves through some of these techniques that you're saying. That's right. Yeah. And we're, we're stuck. It's like, and, and I talk with a lot of people who work with a lot of people who've been in prison, including people who've been tortured in prisons. And it's as if they're still there. They've been out for a year, five years, but they're still living in that situation. And in, for those people, techniques like the shaking and dancing are so enormously helpful. And it just, but it's not just for them. It's for any of us because we, we're all living often enough in the prisons of what happened to us before. And we're sure it's going to happen again. The same hurt, the same rejection, the same loss, the same abuse. We're looking for it to happen out in the world. And until we free ourselves from the prison, the physical prison of our physical tension, but also the mental prison of all these ideas, we can't live fully. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. In, in, to your point, you speak and you've worked with people in all parts of the world. You, you've, you've stressed uh, your, your involvement, involvement with um, Native Americans or ind you know, um, indigenous people. I, I want to touch on that. But I also want to, as you, you know, highlight what that experience was like, I also want you to share what it was like to work with people um, in the from, you know, a range from refugees 
to firefighters and to military personnel. I want, I'm trying to see if there's a pattern or if there are certain things that you figured out across these different uh, vocations and cultures. Uh, and I'm trying to see if this is something that the audience can pick up on because these are all different people, you know, school shooting survivors to veterans, to firefighters, to refugees, and then indigenous people, different experiences, different, um, lives. But I, I'm curious to hear if anything surprised you in your research. You know, it's true. They're very different kinds of people, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different, uh, economic situations, the whole thing. But, you know, the, the other thing that I've discovered is how much more alike we are. And we have to appreciate the differences. But as we start working with these techniques, and when I work with people together, who, people who have formerly been enemies, like Serbs and Albanians after the war in Kosovo, or Israelis and Palestinians, or uh, in Haiti, um, Protestant ministers and voodoo priests, each one of whom saw the other quite literally as the devil, uh, when we work with them together and give them the experience to do these techniques to open up and to sit in small groups with each other and get to know each other, these preconceptions start to break down. So I, I think the important thing is that people are often uh, skeptical that anything is ever going to make a difference to them. And this was true of firefighters in New York after after 9-11. It's true of people in Haiti after the earthquake. It's true of Syrian refugees we worked with in Jordan. And of the kids on Pine Ridge Reservation and the school teachers and counselors. Often people, and it's often, it's also true of Washington lawyers and, and medical students. They, <laughs> they, they don't, you know, they don't really, you know, there's a skepticism and a, in a way, a cynicism that, which is kind of born out of difficult experience and also out of fear that nothing can really change. So yeah. you have to accept that to begin with. I remember you mentioned New York City firefighters when you're first working with them and I was teaching the slow, deep, soft belly breathing and shaking and dancing. And one New York City fire lieutenant got up and he said, what is this, some kind of chick flick? <laughs> I cracked up. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's, see, but that's, the, that's the, what we were saying earlier. You know, people have the wrong idea of all these dudes. <laughs> but, you know, he, he, I said, look, try it out, man. I said, you're a practical guy. You tell me. You do this. Let me know if it makes a difference. So he started doing the techniques, and he became our biggest advocate. He led our whole program with the other firefighters and the families because he got it. The point is that this is practical. As people experience the difference, you know, we were doing soft belly breathing maybe for two minutes. You do it for six or eight or ten minutes, you experience a difference. When I was in, when I was in, in Haiti, uh, this is about a year after the earthquake, we were working, we'd begun working in Port-au-Prince, which was terribly hurt by the earthquake. A lot of thousands and thousands of people died. And uh, then we began also working in the southern part of Haiti in a place called Jacmel. And the first day of a training program, people we train, they're doctors, they're nurses, but they're also teachers and community leaders. And in this particular training, there were some farmers who were community leaders. And uh, I taught them the soft belly breathing. And I always ask people, you know, what was it like for you? And the next morning, uh, at the beginning of the day, I said, anybody want to report on what's happened? This is the second day of the training. 
We taught you soft belly breathing and some other things yesterday. Uh, any thoughts about it? And this one guy came to the front of the room. He said, my name is Batichon. I am a farmer. I am the leader of my community. When you taught us this uh, soft belly breathing, I was skeptical. I am a practical man and I'm a Christian. And I wasn't sure how this would fit in. He said, but I felt much more relaxed. My tight shoulders were relaxing. I felt calmer. I felt easier with the people in the room. So I went back to my village in the evening and I called everybody together. And I taught them the soft belly breathing, just the way you taught us. And I said to them, you do this again tonight before you go to sleep, just like you told us. And let's get together in the morning. He said, now this morning, again, everybody came together. And I said, what was it like? And many people said, we had the best night's sleep since the earthquake. And our children slept better. They didn't have nightmares because we taught the children. And they weren't peeing in their bed so much last night. So he said, so I now know soft belly breathing works. I think there you go. (laughs) And that's that's what this is about. It's about and that's what I do, what we do in our trainings, what we do when we work with people all over the world. And that's what I teach in the transformation. Here are the techniques. Here's the science behind them. Here's how they work. Do them. Give them a try. See what happens. And people, really, people all over the world, even though they may be skeptical, like Patishaw at first, it's not part of what they've ever done before, they're willing to give it a try. Most people, especially when they're hurting a lot, they've been through a really difficult time, they're willing to try something that might be of help, and then they decide for themselves. And what we've seen pretty much everywhere that we work, is that the people welcome and accept what we're teaching. And the the other thing that's really important is that the techniques we use um, are often recognizable to people in other cultures. In Gaza, for example, uh, when I, almost any technique I teach, there's somebody who gets up who's an expert in Islam or a scholar of the Quran, and they'll say, well, there's a haditha, there's a commentary in the Quran that talks about something like that. Or the Sufis, who are, who are Muslims, uh, kind of mystical Muslims, the Sufis do this kind of thing. So people recognize, even, and the firefighters, what they recognized right away is, this is practical, man. I can <laughs> see the benefits right away. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, no, that's, that's amazing. And, and, uh, for those listening, you know, once again, uh, the book is called the transformation, discovering wholeness and healing after trauma. Where can people find your book, Dr. Gordon? You can find the book, uh, hopefully in an independent bookstore. I know you can find that on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. It's easily available. Oh, you're, you're in New York. I'm going to be doing a talk in New York. I don't know if anyone mentioned that to you. I'm, I'm going to be doing a, um, I'm going to be in New York at the Open Center. They're having a, on October 3rd at nice. the Marble Collegiate Church, Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz from television and I are gonna be talking about the transformation. So your listeners are well, listeners in New York are welcome to come to that to that program. Just wanted to Absolutely. mention that. Absolutely, I'd love to. I, I'm, on, I'm currently on my book tour as well. So I think I'm gonna be out of town that week because I have to go. But 
I will let people know for sure. That's that Dr. Oz and you. That's incredible. Congrats. Yeah, it'll be fun. We'll have, a, <laughs> have a good conversation. <laughs> I can I can imagine. Uh, before, before we we head out, I, I um have a few more questions. One one question is, uh, what was it like when when you knew that this is something you wanted to do? This is an interesting career, right? The, the idea of studying trauma and stress. Uh, I'm curious to just learn a little bit more about your journey and how you got here and when you knew that this was something you wanted to do for the rest of your life. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I think I um, I grew up, as I was saying to you before we went on the air, I grew up in New York City, too. And I, I was the kind of kid who somebody, you know, would sit down next to me, somebody who was really kind of disheveled and, you know, wild eyed. And I, I didn't know to call them a homeless person. It was just somebody sitting next to me on the subway. And they'd say to me, hey, kid, you want to learn the secret of the universe? And I'd say, yeah, I would. <laughs> so I grew up interested in, you know, in what people had to say. And I also was the kind of kid who, I mean, I was, I was, a, I was a competitive kid and, you know, I wanted to be the smartest and the best athlete, but I also kind of had some compassion in me for other people and for animals. And so that was there from the beginning. And then by the time I went to medical school, uh, what I uh, discovered, what had come into kind of full flower in me, I was really interested in people's stories. And I was interested in how people telling their stories uh, could help to heal themselves by having somebody there who could listen to them tell their stories. And as they told the stories, they would find information in the stories that could be helpful to them. And just the act of sharing could be helpful. So I really, from the, from the beginning, uh, I liked the idea of being with people uh, who are going through a crisis. I wanted to be helpful to other people, which is why I became a doctor. And I was interested in people's stories. And I think that all of medicine, in a sense, is about, or most of it, is about meeting people when they're in a crisis, when they've experienced some kind of trauma. It could be a... Yes. Small one, but it could be a big one, you know, so it's, yeah. it's there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's the very essence of that. I, and the reason why I like asking that question uh, to guests is because I, I want the listeners to understand the importance of, of identifying a skill and connecting that to a problem. Because you said you realized you identified in yourself that you like helping people and you have compassion for even animals and, and, and people and you have this passion for stories and then you pair those two together uh, you, you have what you, you do today. And it's, you know, that combination of, uh, of form, you know, of formulas is not always going to yield the same results or the same career. But if you take the time to, you know, pair what you're passionate about and what you're uniquely skilled to do, uh, it often results in interesting careers. Sure. And the other, the other piece that's really important for me is I still, I wanted to deal with my own difficulties, my own trauma, my own right. challenges, you know, which was certainly came to me. You know, I wondered why was I in medical school? There were many things I didn't like. I was upset. My girlfriend and I broke up also. I had to deal with my own trauma. So I got interested. What's going to help me? And as I used these techniques to help myself, I said, well, look, if they're helping me, why don't I teach them to other people? And from the beginning, this is also important. As a, as a doctor, I was always interested in the capacity that people have to understand and help themselves. I, I didn't, you know, I understood that in an emergency, you needed a doctor to 
you know, if you had a fracture or you needed surgery or you had an overwhelming infection, you needed somebody there to, to put you back together. But I also understood that we have a tremendous capacity to understand and help ourselves. I started to, I could see that in other people. I started to learn that in myself. So my focus really for most of the last 50 years has been developing a program to help people do exactly that, to understand and help themselves. And that's that's what I do. And that's what my job is at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, is training people who can in turn to help and understand themselves and then to do the same thing for other people. Love it. Love it. Uh, the transformation is out available. We'll put that in your show notes. Last question, sir, is my mission statement reframed as a question? My mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. So how do you use your difference to make a difference, Dr. Gordon? By difference to make a difference. Well, yeah. I think <laughs> probably in a couple different ways. First of all, <laughs> People have always thought I was a bit different. I don't know if you had the same experience. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I always accept, I'm, I'm very, uh, I have a wide palate. <laughs> so uh, I'm ready for anything. <laughs> I remember in college saying, you know, I, I, I think I'm very normal. And a couple of my friends looking at me say, shaking their heads, uh-uh, not so normal. So, but, but the gift of my difference is I've gone my own way. I've made discoveries that are important to me. I've done what's important to me. I've never been, I mean, I, as a doctor, I can always make a living, but I've never been too worried about money or too worried about status or too worried about having a quote career. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. And I wanted to deal with the obstacles to that. And so I, I think that by virtue of doing that, by virtue of trying to go my own way and do what is helpful and healing to me and other people, I've helped other people to get in touch with that part of themselves, to get in touch with their own difference that can make a difference, their own uniqueness, their own originality. And that's that's crucially important part of healing. We're all different and our paths are going to be different. And my finding my path is not so that you can follow what I do. It's so that I can help you find your own path. So I really appreciate your questions. It's a great one. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, that, that's my mission statement. So I like to ask that. But um, thank you, sir. Thank you. This has been very enlightening. Um, I really hope people get your book. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Great. Thank you for having me and the transformation on your show. The pleasure is mine, ladies, gentlemen, and gender nonconformers. Till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 